Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a very warm welcome to the first in uh, this series of events organized by the LSE European Institute and the European Parliament uh, Information Office uh, in London uh, for the run-up to the 2014 European Parliament elections. Now, you're here because... Uh, it has not uh, escaped your, your attention, I would suggest, that we have a new uh, ism to add to the political lexicon. Uh, it has little of the, at least yet perhaps, it has little of the satisfying coherence of liberalism or socialism or conservatism, and it's probably too early uh, to judge its uh, staying power as a, as a concept. So why should we sit up and... Uh, Take notice uh, of it. What's interesting about it? Uh, in short, um, I guess I'm asking, why are we here? Well, it's interesting because it challenges an orthodoxy. Um, and one of the orthodoxies uh, of post-war Europe that we all rather take for granted, uh, namely that the European project, understood as a continuing process of integration uh, towards an ever closer union of peoples, uh, is a good thing, uh, with a moral force which s somehow sweeps all before it. The second reason why we've uh, noticed it uh, is its ability to shape the political terms of trade, uh, the political weather, and uh, even to shape electoral outcomes. Now, up to now, mainly that's been mostly at the margins, but if we were to believe the experts, that may be set to change in May um, at the European Parliament elections. Now, is all this perhaps to give it too much uh, credit or status? Is there, is there maybe less uh, to it than meets the eye? Is Euroscepticism as much a surrogate uh, for, for other grievances uh, than about a reaction to the, to the uh, or perception of a deep disconnect uh, between uh, elites and the people? Is it founded on principled objections to the ceding of or sharing of sovereignty? Or is it mostly an objection to policy outcomes uh, which can be attributed um, uh, to the European Union and which different countries feel in different ways at uh, different times? Or is it just a, a rough-and-ready way of describing um, that inchoate feeling of exasperation, uh, that of those grumbles uh, about the occasional directive from Brussels, uh, which seems tiresome and unnecessary and overly intrusive? Sometimes, in fact, might it not be more accurate uh, to talk uh, in some of the usages that we make, that some of the ways we use Euroscepticism, would it not actually be more accurate to talk of Europhobia? And we might ask ourselves, how useful is it uh, to use it uh, to, as a term uh, when it is used so loosely as to encompass parties as, uh, as diverse as, as UKIP, uh, the Front National in France, the Sweden Democrats, uh, Jobbik in Hungary, uh, the Lega Nord, the True Finns, Syriza, the Golden Dawn in Greece? Is it mainly a, a temper or a mood that ebbs and flows with the news headlines? Or is it a deeper, a deep howl of rage, which may yet deafen us in four, four months' time 
at the European Parliament elections. If we're to believe the many analysts uh, who... um, who are predicting a sharp increase in support for Eurosceptic parties, not only of the far right, but also of the far left. Or more dramatically, are we looking at a turning point uh, in Europe in the direction of radical identity politics based on ethnicity? And if that existential moment, which some are predicting, actually comes to pass, will it be a cathartic moment or just a footnote in the history books when they come to be written. Or a warning, or just a warning of things to come if the, discon- if the disconnect with a citizen is not quickly addressed and repaired. But enough of, these, enough of these subtleties. Something is clearly happening in Europe, um, and we need to understand what's, what's really going on. And we couldn't have two better experts than our guest tonight to help us to answer these questions. Both of them have been digging well below the surface uh, of this phenomenon we call Euroscepticism, trying to understand its nature, its appeal, and its prospects. Dr. Matthew Goodwin, on my immediate left, is Associate Professor of uh, Politics at Nottingham University. He specializes in the areas of extremism, of British and European politics, and also public attitudes towards immigration and minorities. He's a widely recognized expert uh, on extremism, and I should say immediately, I'm not... not, uh, intending to imply, of course, that all forms of Euroscepticism are, are extremist, but clearly there is an overlap which we need to ex- consider and explore. And uh, Matthew is, in fact, co-author of a book to be published next month, I believe, called Revolt, um, Revolt on the Right, um, which, having seen the quality of uh, Matthew's research on European, particularly radical right part parties is something um, is something uh, most definitely to look forward to. Peter Kellner on the other side uh, of the table well I guess he needs very little introduction he is president of of YouGov and one of the not just best known but also respected and highly regarded um, uh, under, um, sophologists, pollsters um, analysts of, uh, of public attitudes um, and, uh, and trends in those attitudes. He's been, a, of course, a journalist, political commentator for several newspapers, including the Sunday Times, The Independent, The New Statesman, Evening Standard, BBC Newsnight, uh, you, you name it. And in 2011, he was given a special recognition award by the Political Studies Association uh, for his work over four decades on opinion polls, uh, elections and political analysis. And we're delighted that he's been able to come to join us and share some of his uh, findings and expertise uh, with us tonight. So without further ado, um, uh, we'll follow, of course, our normal format, roughly 20 minutes for each speaker, and then I hope we're going to have an, uh, a lively discussion in the best LSE tradition afterwards, going up to shortly before 8 o'clock. So we've got some time to really get our teeth into this into this uh, crunchy uh, issue. And Matthew, I will ask you to kick off, uh, if I may. And if you'd uh, like to, please take the floor. Okay, well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming along um, to hear some of my research. I'm going to be talking mainly about Britain, uh, and I appreciate some of you have more of an interest in what's going on in Europe. Uh, And we can perhaps take that conversation into the question 
uh, and answer session. Uh, the reason I want to talk about Britain is because I want to share some brand new research with you that actually nobody else has seen yet, apart from my co-author, Robert Ford, at the University of Manchester. You're actually the first people to see uh, what I'm about to show you. So this could go really well or it could go really badly. Um, but, but here's the trend uh, in British politics. This is what we've all been uh, talking about. This is what's dominating the headlines, the rise of uh, Euroscepticism, Euro the rise of uh, the UK Independence uh, Party. Um, what, I, what I should say, just before I get into this as well, given um, what's been happening over the past week, my co-author and I have started sharing a little bit of this research um, on a blog at the Daily Telegraph, and we've been asked all kinds of interesting questions about whether this research is funded by the European Union and whether this research is funded by shady um, conspiratorial groups and whether I'm aligned to militant left-wing groups. And I assure you, I'm, I, it's not that exciting. I'm a pretty bland uh, uh, centrist, uh, if anything, and uh, th there is no excitement uh, behind this research. In fact, there was no research grant uh, uh, aligned to this research. Um, so, how can we explain um, this trend? This is what I'm going to be drawing on uh, over the next 20 minutes. So it's packed full um, of all kinds of data, mainly large-scale individual surveys, very reliable, very objective, um, using the British election studies since uh, 1964, the British social attitude surveys. Uh, and what it gives us overall is a, is a really good sample of, of UKIP voters, uh, over 5,000 of them, in fact. And we've added to that by interviewing most uh, of, of, of uh, the party's kind of key insiders, if you like, just to try and understand what they're doing in terms of strategy uh, and organisation. Uh, we've read pretty much everything that's ever been written on UKIP uh, since it was formed in 1993. Uh, and all of this took place last summer. Uh, and, and, and my summer and also Roberts was completely obliterated uh, by this UKIP research. But it was interesting because UKIP is an interesting party and going along and doing field work um, on UKIP is, is, is obviously uh, going to be entertaining. Uh, and, and one of those things actually was, was going to the UKIP conference. And this is a party that's been dismissed as uh, a party of, of, of loons and fruitcakes. And the first thing you actually see... Um, when you go into UKIP's <laughs> conference is, is that. So you can't say that they don't have a good sense of humour uh, because they definitely uh, do. Um, so what's the conventional wisdom about this? The conventional wisdom would have us believe that UKIP's rising support is rooted in disillusion, middle class, Eurosceptic, conservatives. So ultimately this is around uh, single issue concerns uh, over Europe. Um, but of course... I am going to say this as an academic, the conventional wisdom is wrong, uh, and in fact uh, it, it is very wrong. The insurgency that UKIP is leading against the established uh, political class runs far deeper than the day-to-day -day, uh, events in the Westminster village. It isn't simply about the unpopularity uh, of David Cameron. In fact, uh, what we trace the party to is some very deep and some very real and some very sharp divisions um, in British society. So just before I take you into those divisions, um, I'd like to begin just by asking you not to think of UKIP as a specific party, but just think of it as a symptom um, of underlying trends and underlying divisions uh, in Britain, and think of it as a byproduct of those deeper um, shifts in our values. So let's take a look at who's actually supporting the party. And put simply, I'm talking here about their voters, not their activists. Put simply, these are uh, male, um, pale, stale, and financially struggling voters. And I don't mean to be flippant, but the, the UKIP uh, revolt is uh, one that has a very sharp social 
uh, profile. This is a very old uh, political party in terms of its votes. It's an almost exclusively white um, political party. It's heavily uh, skewed towards men. Uh, and it's heavily skewed towards uh, Britons who typically left school at 16 and didn't go back into uh, the educational uh, system. Now, obviously, one of the biggest misconceptions about this party is that it is rooted in middle-class conservatives, and that is not the case. UKIP is the most heavily working-class uh, party uh, now in British politics. It is not a second home uh, for disgruntled conservatives in the shires. It's very much a first home for angry, disaffected, uh, working-class Britons from a range of different uh, political backgrounds. And we would argue that these are the social groups who, in essence, have been left behind over the last three decades. They haven't had the skills and the resources to uh, adapt and to prosper amidst Britain's social uh, and economic transformation. And we can track some of these uh, divides over time. I mean, I'm going to talk at quite a broad level here, but looking at British society uh, and, and the way it's evolved for over the last few decades, you can see consistently that the groups that UKIP is really um, appealing to and bringing into its revolt are those who do not have any qualifications, who tend to come from more financially disadvantaged backgrounds, who are more likely to say that they want to leave uh, the European Union. Uh, and they stand in a quite a different space from those who have gone through university, who have joined the rising and growing uh, professional middle class uh, in British society. They're drawing again on these these sharp um, divides in Britain, if you follow that black line, which is a percentage of working class respondents who say immigration is a problem for Britain, and also the, the line that accompanies it, which are those who left school at the age of 16, and also the third line that follows underneath, those who were born before 1950, this is the, this is the groundswell that UKIP is really benefiting from. And it applies across the board when we look at the Eurosceptic radical right agenda. I mean, that core agenda is primarily one around Euroscepticism, um, hostility to immigration, and also political disillusionment. Again, um, the groups that UKIP's really drawing in, those are those which are most likely to say not only that they're concerned over these issues, but that, in essence, they, they just want less uh, they, they want less of these issues. They want, in this case, to reduce uh, immigration a lot and are the most likely to feel very disconnected from the way in which our politics is evolving and to feel alienated from mainstream political life. It's the working class, those with no qualifications, who are the most likely to feel that they have no say, no voice in British politics today. And you can see, actually, that that divide that stands between them and those that have benefited from university education, who have joined the kind of larger, more uh, economically stable majority, is actually quite uh, sharp. But it's also these social groups that are likely to look at British national identity in a more restrictive not necessarily wholly ethnic sense, but are certainly more likely to, to view British national identity as being uh, really rooted in uh, sort of ancestry and being born in this country. And that divide, again, across those groups uh, is quite stark. And I will, by the way, be happy to uh, share these slides so you can chew on them a bit more. And there's a very strong generational component here. I mean, the reason UKIP is really bringing out the grey vote, if you like, is because it's the grey vote that are most Eurosceptic. They are most likely to say uh, that Britain should withdraw from the European, Uni European Union over time, whereas it's you know, my students' generation who are the most positive towards uh, the European Union. So in essence, and I am you know, boiling this down um, and being slightly um, 
you know, painting some very broad categories here. But what we're talking about is a generation of Britons who feel essentially left behind. They don't have the skills and the resources to adapt within, uh, within um, contemporary society. They look out at Britain and they don't see a society that they particularly like. They don't see a society that they particularly want to be in. Um, and they feel completely disconnected from the way in which our party politics has really converged on a more middle class, uh, more socially liberal, more pro-EU, more pro-migration uh, agenda. And UKIP are forging some very, very strong ties um, with these groups you know, who are uh, deeply pessimistic. And this is really where Labour comes in, because one of the big conventional wisdoms going around, particularly Britain and especially the Westminster Village, is that this is all about you know, introducing problems for David Cameron and the Conservatives. You know, we really push hard uh, against that. Uh, UKIP has a serious amount of potential um, in terms of the, the Labour vote and disillusioned Labour voters. If you look, for example, at the lighter shade um, columns here, this is UKIP support between 2004 and 2010. So prior to the onset of the coalition government, UKIP was actually drawing more support from disillusioned Labour voters than it was from uh, disillusioned Conservative voters. It's actually only been since 2010 that uh, UKIP's begun to really make inroads into uh, the disillusioned Conservative vote. And even still, it's not by any stretch an overwhelming uh, majority. You know, so, so the point is, this, this rebellion is able to prosper under quite different political contexts. The difference, of course, is that before 2010, UKIP were not as organised and not as um, hard-working, if you like, at elections as they are now. And what do these voters think? I mean, they've been painting some broad strokes about their social background, but what do they think? And we know across Europe what radical right voters look like. We know primarily they're hostile to immigration, but we know that that comes with other motives, that they are politically dissatisfied, they are economically pessimistic, they are Eurosceptic. And interestingly, that's a recent development. Uh, some radical right parties used to be pro-Europe uh, because they saw the EU as a sort of useful vehicle which could sort of fend off the communist threat, which was more pressing in earlier decades. But now that shift has really taken on and Euroscepticism has become really key. And you can see with the purple bars that UKIP voters do express these radical right motives far more so than supporters of other political parties. They're more likely to be strongly Eurosceptic, more likely to be dissatisfied with the way British democracy is working, more likely to think immigration is the most important issue facing the country, more likely to be economically pessimistic. Euroscepticism is key to um, this trend. Uh, there's, no, there's no doubting that. Uh, some 95% of the UKIP voters in our sample strongly disapproved of Britain's relationship with Europe. If you just consider this, just as one kind of uh, finding, um, in our overall sample, uh, over 100,000 uh, voters, UKIP were winning support from less than one in 20. But among those who said they were strongly Eurosceptic, who, who really wanted Britain to withdraw from the EU, UKIP were recruiting one out of every five. Uh, so this is, in essence, telling us that Euroscepticism is a precondition to being a UKIP voter, um, but it is not the whole story. It, it, it's sort of useful to think of it in, in, like this. I mean, UKIP needs Euroscepticism to, to, to start a conversation with voters, but to close the deal, it needs to also tap on their concerns over immigration and the responsiveness of the political system. And you can see this by comparing Eurosceptics in Britain who have turned to UKIP uh, with Eurosceptics in Britain who are still remain resistant to UKIP's charms, if you like. And you can see in the bold column there that actually those who have sort of you know, entered into a relationship with UKIP, 
that they are more likely uh, to be dissatisfied with democracy, to feel they don't have any political influence, to view immigration as one of the most important issues, and to have this more, uh, as this, uh, to have a sharper radical right profile than those who have not turned uh, to UKIP. In fact, the party is becoming so successful among those strong Eurosceptics who are also concerned over immigration and the, the political system that they, they have now replaced the Conservatives among strong Eurosceptics. So they really are uh, making uh, some significant head, headway among that section of the population. But what, what about party leadership here? Um, and what's interesting, actually, is, is taking on this idea that, that David Cameron has played a particular role in, in sort of fueling the alienation among these groups. And actually what's interesting is when you compare um, Conservative and Labour leaders in the early years, um, essentially what this chart is telling you is how much leadership matters after we control for everything else, after we control for where they come from, after we control their attitudes. You know, to what extent is David Cameron fueling UKIP support above and beyond everything else? And you can see that actually the Conservative Party leaders did play more of a role in the past than the Labour Party leaders in terms of dissatisfaction. But actually, when you get to the last couple of years, you can see actually Ed Miliband's um, uh, ratings and also David Cameron's ratings um, have really become central to understanding UKIP's appeal. And we think that's some pretty good evidence that the party's strategy of trying to connect more widely with an anti-politics, anti-establishment voice is actually beginning to um, pass through. Now, where does this leave UKIP's uh, prospects going forward? Because I'm sort of you know, painting a very brief picture, and obviously the book goes into a lot more detail, and there's a lot more figures, and you know, the argument is, uh, is sort of you know, fleshed out in far more detail. Um, you know, Richard Hofstadter, who was an American historian, once said that challenger parties were, were often like bees, and that they come up very quickly, they sting the party system, and then they, they wither away very quickly. Actually, UKIP is not really like that. UKIP is more more like a wasp in the sense that it's likely to keep coming back and back. And the reasons for that, I think, firstly, in terms of the wider climate in British politics, you know, it's obviously favourable to the radical right at the moment, but it's actually become more favourable uh, since the financial uh, crisis. Let me give you a couple of examples um, as, as, as to why that's the case. Um, on the chart, you can see, the in rough terms, the percentage of the population who are both Eurosceptic and dissatisfied with politics. That's the very black line. Alongside that, you can see the percentage of the population who are Eurosceptic and also voice concerns over immigration. And then the line at the bottom is really your ideal UKIP voter. They're Eurosceptic, they're hostile to immigration, and they really don't like the political system. And you can see across all of them quite an upward curve uh, since the 2010 general election. So, um, in other words, the, the wider climate's become far more favourable for this uh, party. But it's become more favourable also in a specific way. Um, without going into detail, we find that UKIP's con U the average UKIP voters' concerns over immigration are not irrational. They're not sort of you know, knee-jerk bigots, if you like. I mean, I'm sure that you know, there are some within, within the party's electorate, probably like there are in other electorates. But what's interesting is how important performance politics uh, is to these voters. And what I mean by that is their anger at how immigration has been managed. They really don't like the way in which immigration was managed, both under Labour, which has a very negative legacy among all voters on that issue, 
but also the Conservatives. And you can really begin to see, actually, that dotted line at the bottom, which is negative perceptions of both parties on immigration, uh, has increased sharply. And that is really telling us a lot about the space that's open here for UKIP, that they are connecting with voters um, who, who are not only anxious over this issue, but who just don't believe that the political establishment is capable or, or is even willing to do something on that issue. And, of course, that's unlikely to dissipate, largely because you, know, you could argue mainstream party leaders have not been honest with voters about their, uh, the restrictions on their ability to do something on that issue. Um, and I'm just coming to the end, so let me just show you a couple of more things, a couple of other things about why this potential is likely, likely to remain. Let's just look in specifically at Cameron, who's, who's obviously not likely to lead his party into uh, the 2015 general election. Cameron's problem, even though it's not all about him, this is a broader problem with, with political leadership in Britain, Cameron's problem is that he's really unpopular among those voters who are also receptive to UKIP. And this, bas- this chart basically tells us how his ratings among those who are Eurosceptic, those who are politically dissatisfied and those who are concerned over immigration. His ratings have plummeted among those groups, uh, in particular since 2011. Uh, So, you know, there is an element of truth to the argument that a lot of this is about Cameron. It isn't the whole story, but the Conservatives do have a really big problem uh, if, if, if they're looking at Cameron as a man who's going to try and reconnect with this base. It isn't, however, all good news for the radical right. Uh, And there there are five points I just want to end on. Uh, There are, if you like, five challenges that are facing UKIP. The first is the gender gap in their electorate. Many women in British politics share UKIP's views, but they're not voting for UKIP to the same extent as men, and there are obvious reasons why that's the case, Godfrey Bloom being one of them. Um, but but, but this, it actually symbolises, I think, a real problem for the radical right in Europe generally. Um, only now has Marine Le Pen in France begun to connect with women, some three decades after her father founded uh, the National Front. UKIP are also going to find it very difficult to connect with uh, British women. It's also almost exclusively white. Only 0.4% of UKIP voters in our sample were non-white. You know, the argument that they're connecting with minorities, it's, it's just not true. Um, this is a heavily white rebellion. And in the same way that the US Republicans have an issue and the British Conservatives also have an issue here, UKIP has an even bigger issue in terms of trying to connect with a more diverse coalition. Thirdly, it's very old. I mean, very old. It's the oldest um, electorate in British politics. How are they going to replenish their base when most of uh, you know, young Britons, even though they're facing very difficult economic circumstances, are also far more favourable towards Europe, um, not so fussed about immigration, uh, and generally not so receptive to the radical rights agenda? There's also a fourth challenge here, which is how can UKIP hold on to the voters that they're going to get in May which are slightly, slightly different from their core base of older, angry, white working-class men. At European elections, we show how that base actually expands a little bit, and you could begin to make inroads into more economically secure groups. But then after the European elections, like in 2010, that contracts again very quickly. The question for Farage and co. is how can you hang on to those more periphery uh, groups of voters as you go into a general election? And if they can do that... It's going to make the 2015 general election very interesting. If they can't do that, they're back to the problems that have haunted them for the last 20 years. And when they get to that election, can they meet a very formidable kind of institutional challenge that that has faced every challenger party in British politics, our first-past-the-post system? Let me just give you one example of UKIP's problem here. 
If you look at the, the chart um, that, that's up there, the, this shows the distribution of Liberal Democrat vote shares. So essentially the number of seats where they're polling over 20%, over 30%. Now, if you want a successful rebellion in British politics, you want that tail at the back where you begin to see them going up into 30 and 40%. That's what you need to, to, uh, in order to win constituencies in British politics. This is UKIP's at the 2010 uh, general election simply getting absolutely nowhere near those 13, 40%. Now, I don't deny that's going to look different at 2015, but the party's only just gotten on to the fact that you need to be locally active, locally intensive, if you're going to win constituencies. Now, can they do that in time for the 2015 general election is another challenge um, that they face. Thank you very much. Thank you for a fascinating uh, presentation. Lots to chew over. Um, and I'm sure that uh, Peter's going to have a, a lot to say about a lot of your findings and add some of his own. Peter, the floor is yours. We very much look forward to what you're going to say. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I should come with an equally impressive set of slides. I'm afraid I don't. So you're just going to have to listen or ignore my words. Um, I'm going to pick up where, where Matthew left off and start by looking at the prospects for the European elections, uh, European Parliament elections in uh, just over four, four months' time, just under four months' time. Um, we did a poll last week uh, which had UKIP on 26%, and we asked about European Parliament election voting, Labour on 32%, uh, the Conservatives on 23%, Liberals and Greens scrapping it for fourth place below 10. Um, now, if UKIP are at 26% now, before campaigning has really got underway, we know from past European Parliament elections that they are likely to gain support. And if one thinks of the European Parliament elections roughly like a nationwide by-election, we know the dynamics of the protest voting past by-elections by can see a huge surge for the, the protest vote. So uh, if the European Parliament elections are being held now, in other words, I'm ignoring any as well, outside events or discoveries about UKIP people or whatever, uh, assuming the essential politics is as it is now, I would be surprised if UKIP does not come first. Uh, and I would at the moment expect the order to be UKIP first, Labour second, Conservatives third, with the Liberals and Greens scrapping it out for fourth place. Um, and indeed, it is perfectly possible that there will be getting on for, or even more than, twice as many people voting UKIP in May as voting Conservative. I say this not simply because of the obvious, as of a statistical point, and the number of uh, MEPs elected to Strasbourg, but because of the knock-on consequence for British politics. Um, as Matthew said at the very end, um, UKIP look like next year, unless something extraordinary happens, suffering the fate that the Liberal Democrats, Liberals used to have, which was that their minority vote was so evenly spread that they never got enough votes in any one place um, to win, except in places where usually traditionally in the case of the Liberals, um, that, that they, they'd um, put down roots. 
And it's only in the last 20 years as the Liberal Democrats have managed to um, get that tail that we saw just now of places where they're getting 30, 35, 40, 45% in significant numbers that the Liberal Democrats um, uh, have ended up with um, uh, now 50, uh, 57 seats. Remember, at the last general election, the Liberal Democrat share was almost identical to the share of the combined Liberal SDP alliance back in 1983, around 23, 24%. But the Liberal Democrats in 2010 won more than twice as many seats as the Alliance did in 1983, and that was principally a function of the fact that in 1983 the vote was much more evenly spread, and by 2010 it was more efficiently spread. So the UKIP does... we, We could well be in the position where in two elections, two national elections less than a year apart, in the first election UKIP comes first... And in the second election, next year's general election, you don't win any seats at all. Um, or if they win the odd seat for some particular local reason, you know, maybe one or two or three, but they will not be major players in the next, um, next parliament. The real impacts of UKIP on domestic politics could be the effects they have after this May on the Conservatives. Now, if we do have UKIP, say, 30%, Labour 25, Tories 16, 17, uh, if the Tories are wise and get their act together, they will simply say, look, European elections are different, they're proportional, low turnout, big protest votes, not choosing a government, let's stay calm. But there are some Conservative MPs who uh, will, I'm sure, use such a result to argue very strongly for a change in Conservative direction on Europe, on immigration, and so on. And so one of the big questions for British politics in the second half of this year is how fierce that contest inside the Conservative Party is and what its outcome is. To put it very crudely and simply, um, if the Tories get this wrong and they appear to be a party divided after this May, then that will help UKIP not necessarily win any seats for UKIP, but, but, but siphon off two or three or four thousand votes in those key marginals where the Conservatives are fighting Labour or they're fighting the Liberal Democrats. And if the UKIP votes in May next year is anything like its current poll rating of around 11-12%, I think the Tories are, to use a technical political science term, stuffed. Um, uh, If the Conservatives can push the UKIP votes back down to 5-6%, then I would think the Conservatives are likely to be the, if not outright winners, at least the largest party in the next Parliament. So the um, playing out of the drama of the European elections and and UKIP support and and, and the Tory internal conflict could be decisive in next year's um, general election. Let me put that point to one side and try and explore a little more some of the points that um, 
Matthew made, I mean, he showed us very uh, clearly uh, as well who is moving to UKIP. I'd like to raise some thoughts, and they're thoughts, they're hypotheses. This is not firm material as to the why. And I will start with a couple of bits of um, broad evidence. Uh, the first is some research we did just over a year ago at YouGov on Euroscepticism. And we found, using some smart cluster analysis, which I appreciated the results of, but um, admire the people who did what I couldn't understand how they did it, but it's great stuff. You can, broadly speaking, divide the British public into three groups. The first are what we call the, the, the worried or possibly terrified nationalists. These are the potential UKIPers. A bit over a third of the, the population. These are people who basically don't like abroad. They don't like the European Union, they don't like immigrants, they don't like overseas aid. Uh, most of them don't particularly like the Americans. They quite like the Australians and New Zealanders and Canadians. Um, but otherwise, they don't like abroad. Um, and they're the people who, if there is to be a, a, a referendum on British membership of the European Union, that will be the clear vote for getting out. And the other end is the group I call the progressive internationalists. I use progressive in the, in the Whig sense rather than the left-right sense. People who are pretty optimistic, think the world with pickups is broadly moving the right way. They feel comfortable with the rest of the world. If the first lot of drawbridge, drawbridge up, these are the drawbridge down. These are the people who are comfortable with Europe, um, less antagonistic towards immigrants, less antagonistic towards overseas aid. Um, and they're the people who will vote to stay in the EU. The third group is the, the hinge group. And they're the people we call the pragmatic nationalists. These are people who, on the whole at the moment, would rather we weren't in the European Union, but on the whole for instrumental reasons rather than for ideological or, or emotional or, or uh, drawbridge-up reasons. These are people who, um, as it were, in peacetime, when the issue of British membership of the European Union is not a subject of an imminent vote, think we're probably a bit worse off. It probably costs a bit too much money. It probably imposes too many rules on British life um, and we'd be better off outside. But you know, if you go back over more than four decades of Britain's relationship with Europe, it was ever thus. So when we had the 1975 referendum, well, nine months before that, there was a uh, not an overwhelming, but a clear majority for coming out. In the referendum itself, in 1975, two to one for staying in. And although we didn't have the detailed polling data for then that we have now, I'm pretty sure if we did, it would be the, pragma it would be the pragmatists who nine months out, when it was a fringe issue, said I'd rather not be in the then common market, in the referendum, they're the people who turned around and said, actually, now I've thought about it, I'm not sure I want to take the risk to my job, my livelihood, my prosperity of pulling out, but to stay in. Um, less well remembered, but, but equally important, was the 1983 general election. Uh, the handful of you who remember it may recall that that's the one election uh, when there was a major political party as part of its manifesto commitment saying we will leave um, the common markets. That was the Labour Party under Michael Foote. 
1982, the polling evidence was that people wanted to leave the common market. Labour thought it had a popular policy. Well, it didn't. Not only did it get smashed in the 83 general election, but polling at that time showed that the issue of Europe, people had swung round, as they had in 75. Um, so my judgment is that what you've got with Europe is that UKIP appear to be on the side of majority opinion. Actually, they're on the side of that part of opinion, which is not a majority, a large minority, but not a majority, which are really the worried or the terrified nationalists. The second bit of evidence I want to adduce comes from a big poll that we, you give, we at YouGov did at the time of the last European elections in 2000. And nine. We did a big uh, 32,000 sample. And we did it because it was one of the one chance we had um, to get a, a substantial number of BNP as well as UKIP supporters. You remember BNP got 6% of the vote. They got two seats in Strasbourg. And so um, um, we, we got um, uh, around 1,000 BNP voters, uh, and I think it still remains in the academic world. I mean, it's still the sort of data source that people mine because it's um, was very, been very hard generally to get decent numbers of BNP voters in any survey. But what we found was that... Um, I better be careful. I don't want Nigel Farage to sue me. So this is not about the party but about the support that in terms of support, UKIP was BNP light. Um, what do I mean by this? If you look at the BNP votes, half of it, roughly, depending on your precise definition, half of it was by any terms racist. But the other half wasn't really racist. It was certainly anti-immigrant. But when you dig into the figures, what you find is that half, it was really about insecurity and pessimism, a feeling that um, we're not getting a fair crack of the whip in today's Britain, that our kids have a pretty grim future facing them. A new kip was less racist, more insecure. It was the same two things, a different mix in terms of the UKIP voters. Um, and I think there's a lot of what Matthew was showing us. In a sense, it's the similar kind of story refracted through these various issues that Matthew showed us. And what I want to do now is take as a sort of a leap of faith, make some suggestions to you, and given that we are at the London School of Economics and Political Science, a suggestion that here is something that perhaps any of you who are pondering a master's or, or, a, or a, a doctorate, something that you might want to explore some segment of. What I want to suggest to you is that um, the underlying insecurity that is, I believe, the core phenomenon of the rise of UKIP, but also the rise of, of nationalism in other parts of Europe, as we heard earlier, um, there is something it's certainly exacerbated by what has happened since 2008, since Lehman Brothers, since the recession, the euro crisis and all that. You know, clearly one of the reasons why they may be getting on for 100 nationalist MEPs in the next European Parliament is against the 55 to 60 now, again depending on precise definition and the 
35 to 40 there were in, in the 2004 European, European Parliament, clearly the current recession has played a part. However, in a number of countries, of which Britain is one, the phenomenon predates the current recession. UKIP got 16% of the votes and uh, a fair number of MEPs in 2004. The Freedom Party in Austria was getting more than 20% back in the 1990s. The Front National in France, the breakthrough, initial breakthrough came in 1986 uh, when Mitterrand, in an act of appalling cynicism, decided to change French's electoral system to proportional voting as a way of saving the Socialist Party from annihilation. And that was when suddenly the Front National got a number of, of, of deputies, and then, of course, subsequently the French system changed back, but the genie was out of the bottle. Um, you look at Holland, you look at a number of countries, you look at Italy and the Northern League, there was clearly a rise in nationalist sentiment during the good economic times, not just since 2008. And the suggestion I want to put to you is... Let me put it bluntly and then qualify it so I'm not completely misquoted. I think Marx was, in a sense, right. I don't mean his economic theories, which were bollocks. <laughs> but his essential mid-19th century observation about the nature of capitalism, about the nature of change and the removal of points of certainty, the insecurity, the tendency to monopoly, and the move over time of money going to labour to going to capital. And I think, in a sense, the story of the last 30 years or so across the industrialised world has been that. If you look at what's happened to the Gini coefficient in most industrial countries, it turns somewhere between the mid-70s and the early 80s in most advanced countries. If you look at the share of GDP going to wages or going to company profits, it started to turn at around then. And I think at a fairly profound level, we are seeing um, capitalism changing in a way which moved us from the broad mixed economy, social democratic, so sticky market pre-privatisation era of the post-Second World War through to the 70s, when nationalism was nowhere, as we now, in the form which we now see it, through to an era in which the liberal capitalism, intended or unintended, has produced societies in which this form of nationalist politics can flourish. And I will briefly suggest three elements to this. Uh, the first is that um, the economic theory that I was taught, not here, so it may be wrong, was that if you had proper market-clearing systems, you don't get mass unemployment and um, workers get the full fair wage for their labour. Well, it seems to me that the labour markets have freed up in the last 30 years, but we've not had the same kind of 
competitive capitalism. I was taught as a young man by um, one of my mentors at the Sunday Times in the 70s, the essence of capitalism is the avoidance of competition. And today, we have a very competitive labour market, but actually a very uncompetitive market in terms of big industries. And so the terms of trade have moved. So you're getting... Um, societies which, despite the liberalisation, possibly even to some extent because of liberalisation, you are getting a tendency towards monopoly or oligopoly profits, but the labour market is pushing wages down. Secondly, globalisation and free trade. Uh, the theory is very simple. Um, free trade allows uh, countries to specialise in their, where they have comparative advantage. Everybody gains... Overall, those aggregate gains, there are individuals who lose, but the gains are such that you can take the money, some of the money from the gainers, and reimburse the losers, so in the end, nobody need lose. Basic first-year economic theory. The trouble is that one of the consequences of globalisation is that it bears down on the ability of national governments to raise taxes. In other words, the mechanism that is theoretically there to redistribute the benefits of free trade so that nobody really loses out that badly, the, the politics of globalisation do not allow that transfer to happen. So the people who are losing out out of globalisation and free trade are again stuffed. And thirdly, information technology um, has meant that, you know, whereas in the 80s, when you had the recession in the early 80s, it was industrial manual labour that really got it in the neck if you're in the public sector or in the financial services for example, you were okay well I'm afraid now information technology has brought insecurity to the public sector and to obviously the financial services uh, to a massive extent so you know, I find myself slightly surprised at saying all this. I've always thought myself as a sort of soggy, right-wing, labour-y sort of um, anti-Marxist social democrat. But I do want to suggest to you that uh, if one was looking for fundamental reasons why we have this upsurge of nationalist politics across Europe today, where we didn't have it in the 50s, 60s and 70s, I think there is something quite fundamental about the economic structure that we've not managed to do enough to deal with. Thank you. Peter, thank you for a, a, a fascinating uh, set, set of, uh, of remarks. If I may just uh, pick up on one or, one or two of the points you made. I, I, had, I had a sense of the, the way this debate, this discussion was going, was that we were going to nail immigration, migration as, as the main cause across Europe uh, for support of Eurosceptic parties. It may be that if what you say is right about the insecurity uh, a sense of feeling of insecurity uh, worsened by the highly mobile and unsettling nature of global capitalism. Um, uh, well, uh, I mean, one, it, uh, uh, it, it, does, it, it does, I mean, either analysis um, should, you know, directs us, I think, towards um, 
in understanding Euroscepticism as, 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 as uh, a mental attitude which seeks to pin the blame on, on Brussels, uh, either for exacerbating this, uh, the, the unsettling natures of global capitalism or for standing idly by and not protecting uh, the workers, if you like, uh, whilst all these things are, are happening. In Britain, if you, uh, I certainly think it, it's right that we should be looking at, at, at a policy outcomes and impacts above all rather than matters of a constitutional principle uh, in actually shaping most people's attitudes towards the European Union. Uh, when Euroscepticism really started to take off, let's say for argument's sake, around the time of the Bruges speech um, in the late 1980s by, by Margaret Thatcher, and then we look at how press comment evolved and shaped uh, Euroscepticism in Britain through the 90s and into the early noughties, it was very much as, um, as, as a hostility and antipathy uh, towards intrusions from Brussels of a highly regulatory uh, nature, of seen as a bureaucratic, interfering, costly, and uh, what many conservatives at the time saw as socialism through the back door. As, as it was, as, as, uh, and, and that was, and well, uh, it, it, one, one can argue about it. I mean, broadly, certainly Brussels has been liberalizing, but there's also been elements of perhaps over-regulating. Over, over but at that time, I think what was, what was driving things in Britain was this sense that it was this quasi-socialist type um, um, body set of institutions in, in, in Brussels, which looked as though poised to undo the benefits of Thatcherism and uh, Britain's liberal capitalism. At the same time, we saw increasingly in the, in the noughties antipathy in France uh, to Brussels for the exact precise opposite reason, namely a sense that, Brussels, that the Brussels Institute, in particular the Commission, had been captured by Anglo-Saxon liberal capitalists, uh, and, and, and of course a sense that France was no longer driving the European agenda didn't help things at all, but certainly the 2005 referendum on the Constitutional Treaty that was lost in France... Um, and, and the, the, uh, the anti-constitution lobby, which was ultimately successful in France, very much played on the idea that the Brussels was a sort of capitalist sort of type, uh, type tro Trojan horse. Uh, if we look at southern Europe in the last few years, a lot of the uh, hostility, or at least, shall we say, maybe disillusion with the European Union, uh, particularly on, on, on the left, uh, has been to do with the European Union as seen as broadly representing some part of the Washington consensus or doing Berlin's bidding and, and basically exacerbating aus austerity policies, uh, which, uh, when it should have actually been sort of been been, been um, you know been been doing the opposite. Um, so there seem to be. I mean, there's a sort of. I, was, I would suggest uh, you know uh, Brussels becomes the whipping boy for sets of you know outcomes in, in policy terms or broad processes and developments on a global scale, um, uh, which uh, you know uh, which various political groups see and pinning the blame on Brussels, saying that it's either too liberal or too socialist um, or, or, or whatever. At the end of the day, though, does it get down to, if one's looking at what's really driving most of the strongly Eurosceptic parties in, in the EU at the moment, do we keep getting back to, obviously, economic security, but is it basically about migration? Is it basically about immigration? Is it basically about identity politics? If that, if, if, you know, is, is, is this what we're really we're talking about here? Matthew, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on well, both of you, and then, sorry, I will certainly open things up to the floor and pipe down myself. But. Yeah, well, I mean, just a quick point about the sort of broader drivers of Euroscepticism. I think there's a a slightly simplistic but useful distinction in the literature between hard, uh, hard factors that are driving support for parties like UKIP and soft factors. And by hard factors, I mean concerns over 
uh, the economy, concerns over regulation, concerns over the fiscal uh, benefits of EU membership versus soft factors, namely feelings of uh, sort of threat to national identity, feelings that a way of life or, or a set of values are somehow uh, challenged by uh, your country's EU membership. Uh, I, I mean, my reading of the literature is that those soft factors are um, you know, just as important, if not more so, than the sort of economic considerations uh, over EU membership. And I think that's where, you know, bringing it to that question of, well, what do mainstream political parties do about it if, if, if that's where the conversation may lead? You know, that's the problem, I think, because we are fixated with this notion that if you're going to set out the pro-EU case, let's just com- go to town on underscoring the economic benefits of EU membership. Whereas I think that... The, the, the research is quite clear in that you need to, I think, go into that much more difficult conversation with voters about the social um, and, and the cultural impacts of European integration. I, I agree with that. All I'd say is I, I'm not sure the soft and hard are, are that separate. I think yeah. they're massively tied up with each other. Um, and that uh, immigration is is a symptom as much as a cause. Because, after all, many people feel, rightly or wrongly, that their wages are being held down because of, or, or their op- job opportunities are being diminished because of um, uh, immigration. Uh, they express that genuinely, additionally, in terms of identity and the sort of society we've become. But I think it's the two things come... You know, let, 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 if one... If one did a sort of thought experiment, imagine that um, there had been no migration, but the other factors in terms of the nature of, of capital, you know, if the other aspects of globalization and uh, free labor markets and liberalization and, and, and um, privatization and all the rest had happened, um, I suspect you would still have. Uh, as, as much or almost as much insecurity, you would still have opportunities for new um, right-wing parties, that the configuration of the argument might be slightly different because you would need different uh, scapegoats. But I don't think it would be fundamentally different. But, I mean, we can't tell. I mean, the, the joy of what I'm saying and the difficulty of what I'm saying is, is we don't have a parallel universe to test this. So I think I'm right, but... <laughs> Funny that. Um, good. Okay. Right. Um, questions. Um, can I ask you? Uh, you've heard all this a hundred times, but I'm going to say what, what you would expect me to say. Please keep your questions short and st- sweet. Avoid uh, speeches. Please. Please say who you are, uh, what, where you're from, or what your uh, affiliation is, uh, and wait for the roving mic to be to be brought round to you. Um, I think we'll take questions individually to do them justice, rather than try to uh, cluster them sometimes when we have. VVVIPs, and we've got to try to raise through so many questions, uh, so many questions, as many questions as possible. Uh, the gentleman, uh, yes, with your in, in the black jumper, who's uh, raised his hand, I think immediately. Uh, I am Ramin, a member of public. My question is addressed to Matthew. What's the main reason that uh, Labour people are voting for UKIP? Want to take a few, or do you want to do one? Um, let's. Well, in that case, let's 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 bunch let's bunch a few. Yes, the lady at the front, and then the lady right at the back, and then I'll look upstairs. 
Yes. Thank you for the excellent lecture. Uh, we keep talking about immigration as one entity, but obviously it's made of two, EU immigration and outside EU immigration. Do you think that the sentiment against EU immigration is significantly stronger than the sentiment against the outside EU immigration in British public, and if so, why? Okay, thank you very much. And the lady right at the back, yes. Yeah. Hi, my name's Michelle, I'm from Dorset. Um, I'm a UKIP member, possibly the only person here that might be. Um, you are as well, fantastic. And another lady, brilliant. I was just going to say that I'm female, I'm young, I have a very ethnically mixed background, um, and I just was interested to hear a bit more about the 100,000 people that you obviously surveyed. I was very interested to hear what you had to say this evening. Um, but definitely wanted to know where you found those people. Um, I don't think that I'm alone in my age group. Uh, I have a very multicultural mix of friends. I don't think I'm alone in the way that I feel about the European Union. So, yeah, just interested to know a bit more about how you selected the people that you surveyed. Thanks. Thank you. Well, if we can't find such views from deep in Thomas Hardy country, uh, where would we find UKIP, uh, UKIP supporters? Um, good. Um, okay. Um, um, members of our panel, three good questions. Um, would you? Sure, like well, to I, I, I'll try to take the second yeah. one. I think the first yeah. and third, specifically to, to, to Matthew. Um, uh, uh, Yugov, what we, what we found about so the, the, the question about whether people are more hostile to immigrants from EU than outside. Um, I suppose the simple answer is a bit more, but it's a more varied um, answer, slightly more varied. Some years ago, we did a quite detailed survey in which we found that this was before the Romanian and Bulgarian issue came, came um, up, up the agenda, uh, that uh, we were more hostile to um, Polish plumbers than to Caribbean nurses, for example. Um, uh, and there was, I think, an, an, an element of, uh, well... Uh, the, 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 the Polish immigrants are doing down our workers. The Caribbean nurses are saving the NHS from disintegration. Uh, I exaggerate, but not a great deal. Um, so I think there has been um, you know, some... Uh, there is a degree of subtlety and, and discrimination, as it were. Discrimination in the, sorry, the scientific, not the, the statistical term, not, 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 not the... Sort of, and not, not the horrible term, uh, that, 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 that people do take different views. Uh, I, you know, some don't. I mean, some want all immigrants, not, you know, no immigrants at all. Um, but most people take a sort of more nuanced um, view, and it does evolve. And certainly some polling we did, I think, I think before Christmas, was you know, there was a significant fear of what would happen when the, uh, the, the rules changed on January the 1st about Romanian and Bulgarian Im immigrants. And I think one of the most interesting things that's now happening, you see David Cameron, I was at yesterday or the day before, saying it looks as if um, the numbers aren't that great, which reinforces everything we've heard from that poor bloke at Luton Airport, which was the only one they could find, and he's <laughs> practically a national star. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm wondering whether one of the Tory lines between now and May is going to be, because of our sort of tough stand, it hasn't happened. You know. um, but anyway, the answer to your question is... Uh, you, you know, yes, at the moment, there is at least as much hostility to East, Euro East European immigration as there is to non-white immigration from other parts of the world. Mm. Well, if I start with a question at the back and then go to the Labour question, I mean, 
you know, welcome to my Twitter feed. Uh, you know, y- y- young independence members, you know, haranguing me on a daily basis. Okay, okay, but sort of younger... You- okay, um, younger UKIP supporters saying, look, you know, what you're saying about the, the elderly base, uh, is- it doesn't stack up. Um, yeah, okay, there's always going to be an outlier, you know, in- and there-, there are always going to be uh, people who buck the general trend. Um, but the, the, firstly, the surveys that we've been using, um, you know, are, are how I put this diplomatically, are very kosher. Um, you know, they're very reliable. They're, they're very objective. They're used by all academics, and not all academics are raving left-wing extremists. Don't believe the hype. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and the general trend, the general trend, actually, let's just, just, just for argument's sake, um, let's go back to that generational um, uh, chart here. So support for leaving the EU, just, uh, just as one um, question. But you could also, I could bring up a chart on immigration or national identity, and there's the same generational split. Um, if you were born after 1975, you're this dotted line down here, quite below the, the, the black line. If you were born between 1931 and 1945, um, you're far more likely uh, than your grandchildren to say, look, you know, I want out of the EU. And I'm not making a normative statement about that. That's everybody's entitled to, to their opinion. But the generational divisions that we're talking about, they're very real, they're very sharp. Um, and, and not only UKIP, but radical right parties uh, generally uh, in Europe, there are some exceptions. You know, some parties are doing better, better than others among younger voters. Um, but, but there is a question here, I mean, long term here. Um, how do you replenish your, your base? And, you know, I don't dispute that, 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 you know, you're in the party and so on, but, but my I guess would be you, you are probably in a minority in terms of voters. Um, but Matthew, in, sorry, in the other point, but the, the, the gradient is the same for them all. Yeah. So maybe, maybe fewer people born after 75, but a lot more of them now than there were a few years ago. Yeah. 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 Um, but still not to the same extent as their parents and grandparents. Um, now, in terms of Labour, I mean, I think this is the, the, the really big intriguing question, actually, not only about UKIP and Britain, but about the radical right in general. I mean, the radical right in Western Europe has been most successful uh, often when it's really pulled over voters who should otherwise be voting for Social Democrats. I mean, Jean-Marie Le Pen was one of the first to have the most successful uh, working-class party uh, uh, on, on the radical right, um, and, and I'm not comparing, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen to, to UKIP. I don't think UKIP is a is a far right party. I think that characterisation is unfair. But but there there is no question that um, you know they, their support is rooted strongly among voters who should otherwise be expected to vote for social. Uh, Democrats, and the reason I think old Labour are particularly receptive to UKIP, and why we saw things like in South Shields, where UKIP really came from nowhere to poll over 20% of the vote, is that these are voters, in essence, who have been left behind. If I was being you know, sort of quite crude about it, who um, you know are instinctively Eurosceptic, instinctively hostile to um, you know very rapid social change, instinctively anxious about things like immigration, largely because. They've had a tough time over the last 30 years for reasons that Peter uh, alluded to. And let's be honest, I mean, the dynamics of party competition in Britain haven't played to those voters. I mean, Ed Miliband and co. have very little incentive, really, to talk to uh, old Labour voters because they don't determine election outcomes in the same way that a new Labour middle class, um, more financially secure majority do. And Labour strategists have been quite open about that. Um, and, of course, there are symbolic interventions that have gone disastrously wrong. Like when old Labour or seemingly old Labour voters have raised these concerns, they've been dismissed as bigots. 
You know, and that, 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 I think, is something that carries a lot of weight within these, within, within these particular groups that are now very receptive to UKIP. Well, I'm very happy to confirm that not all academics are raving leftists. Um, the, the, uh, yes, we're going to take another cluster of, of three questions. The gentleman there uh, had caught my eye quite some time ago. Um, yeah, there. Yes, that gentleman. Yes, let's see. Uh, my name's Stuart Wheeler. Oh, Stuart Wheeler. And I'm the chairman. Sorry, yes. Oh, sorry, I'm the yes. treasurer of Indeed. UKIP. I have a question about racism. UKIP is the only party which has as a strict rule that no one who has ever been a member of the BNP may join UKIP. And I think that shows it quite clearly, shows quite clearly that we are tremendously anti-racism. But have we got that point over sufficiently, please? Okay, I'm going to take another, another couple of uh, questions straight away. So the lady right at the back had, had also had her hand up for a bit. Um, Tisha Ketelar, I'm a Dutch journalist. Uh, this ties in with the last question. Um, you've spoken specifically about voters, UKIP voters. Is there a difference between the voters and the party activist? Question. Yeah. And, uh, yes, the gentleman is uh, very tenacious in the grey v-neck. Uh, and uh, should, tenacity should be rewarded, I guess. Yeah. That's a Christmas present, by the way. Um, yeah, Eric Kaufman, at, uh, a professor of politics at Birkbeck. I, I just, I'm doing research in this area, so this is... Uh, I just want to get your reaction to a finding that we've pulled out of uh, citizenship surveys from 2007 through to 2011, and that is that uh, 77% of UK-born Sikhs, um, about over 60% of Hindus born in the UK, and 55% of Pakistani Muslims born in the UK say they want to reduce immigration. Um, which astounded us when we saw that figure. The comparable figure is about 83% or so, or 80% for white British. So I kind of want to get your res- how that fits into your story. How do you explain that? Thanks very much. Right, three interesting questions. Yeah, Peter, um, prompt any thoughts? Uh, uh, Stuart's question... Uh, no, I don't think... I mean, the straight answer is no, I don't think you've got that message across... But in any case, I don't think that is the core issue. Um, As I was saying earlier, I don't think racism, as I understand the term, is a a major factor in British politics. Thank goodness. Uh, um, uh, uh, It was was perhaps half the BNP vote and a much smaller fraction of the UKIP vote in 2009. I don't think the phenomenon we're dealing with is, is racism in the terms I understand it? One can then have one can have a sort of uh, an, an, an argument about definition. Um, I, I think it's a very good thing for what you've done uh, in terms of banning BNP members from from joining UKIP. So let's say straight, straight answer is no, you've n- not got that message across. But even if you did get that message across, I'm not sure that in itself would make a huge difference. And I take the other last point. I'm not remotely surprised that uh, Sikhs, Hindus and Muslims uh, think immigration should be reduced. I'm sure if you did uh, other um, groups of, 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 of people from the, from the Caribbean or, or, or Africa, uh, West Africa, it would, be, it would be much the same story because uh, most people do not think of themselves as, in terms of dominant self-identity 
as immigrants. They may think of themselves as Muslim or Caribbean or Ugandan nation. In my case, my father was a Jewish immigrant. Uh, you know, so I am a second-generation immigrant. That is a statement of fact of which I'm aware. It is not a core part of my identity. I don't feel it determines a huge part of my outlook. It may determine some part of my outlook. Um, so I, I think it was ever thus um, that, uh, that immigrants and immigrants' children are almost as keen on uh, reducing the numbers coming in as people who have no immigrant blood whatsoever. Mm. Matthew, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, I'll come to the question about activists and voters. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are big differences between the two groups. We know that from, from you know, the world of research, that those who are in parties tend to, on the whole, be doing a bit better than their voter counterparts. They, you, know, um, you know, I get asked all the time by UKIP supporters, well, I went to university, or, you know, I'm a woman, or... Um, you know, I'm not white um, and I'm an activist. And, well, yeah, because we say activists are often very different from the voters. And when we describe UKIP voters, I think the party assumes we're talking about them. But actually we're talking about the people who are, you know, putting the, the, the tick next to UKIP in, in, in the polling booth. But seeing as you are Dutch, that gives me an excuse to bring in the, the Dutch case, um, which, which is just going back to Peter's earlier point. One of the really interesting um, things in Europe in terms of the Eurosceptic uh, insurgency, I think, is and, and also the radical right insurgency. It, it's just a geography of it. And the Netherlands is interesting, and Austria is interesting, because they've both generally been, you know, they've done quite well unemployment-wise uh, unemployment, un, unemployment in relation to other, mainly sub, southern European democracies. Yet they've seen two of the strongest uh, radical right insurgencies. I mean, if there were an election tomorrow, Wilders you know, may well be leading the most popular party, and in Austria, the Freedom Party that were written off after entering government have actually staged quite a remarkable recovery uh, under Christian Schracker. And those cases are interesting in the same way that Spain and Portugal and Italy are interesting because this assumption that crisis equals uh, turn, a turn to the xenophobic extremist fringe you know, really doesn't hold up um, to scrutiny in Spain and Portugal. I mean, the radical right is, is, is almost non-existent with, with, a, with a small exception of, a, kind of some local, uh, local uh, uh, insurgencies. But, uh, you know, in Italy, the Lega Nord's actually fallen back. Um, so, you know, the, the broader picture, I think, throws up some really interesting questions about, um, you know, the underlying uh, forces uh, behind these groups. Good. Another, we've got another 12 minutes. So there's a lady up there in the pink jumper. Um, I just wanted to ask, to what extent a factor like boredom... Sorry, can you help ask who you are? Um, my name is Carla Kretz, and I'm, work, I'm working as a researcher in Eastern European studies. Um, just wanted to know, to what extent a factor like boredom is playing amongst both voters who are expecting a sense of excitement, that party politics is not... Um, sometimes it goes to that point where there's not much of a debate. So when when somebody comes uh, to to speak a different language, so that provides a certain excitement. And I wondered in what way you heard voters when you answer uh, ask questions. Um, and another thing, I just wanted to talk about what you said about the ideas of rising. Um, nationalism, um, you know, it hasn't been new. Like Enoch Powell, he was in the 1960s, and um, I think it's to do with new people who are coming, with you know, brand new populations who are turning up, and it's this idea of the non-knowing 
your neighbors or is to do with this kind of change in terms of fabric of the, of the population. Because today we have a rise against very white people who are coming from Eastern Europe. So it's, it's, um, it's not so much... Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. I might just give our panelists a chance to answer specifically your, your, your point and then move on. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the point of boredom, uh, UKIP supporters don't seem to be very bored. Uh, I mean, they seem to be... Um, Pretty engaged, pretty animated. Uh, I mean, the, I think the you know the word that I pick up on in, in, in your question is change, and I think uh, rapid social change is is intimately tied up with the things that we've been talking about and the kinds of trends that that I'm pointing to. That uh, you know the, the, the groups that are most receptive to to this uh, political revolt have seen a lot of change uh, in a very short period of time, uh, and and I think have. This isn't in a condescending way, but I think have struggled generally um, to adapt to that because of their position in society. Um, and, you know, I think an interesting place to watch over the next 18 months will be a place like Barking and Dagenham in East London that's seen a, a very rapid rate of change in a very short period of time. Um, and, uh, you know, there you have the, the, the dynamics that I've been talking about it, it really under the microscope and zoomed in. And, and, and th those kinds of areas, I think, um, you know, you'll find a lot of sympathy for uh, the ideas that are being pushed on the radical right. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that there. I, um, I think there's something in this. I, I'd put it slightly differently, but maybe we're talking about the, the, a similar thing, which is that one of the consequences of the movement from the old sticky capitalism to today's free capitalism is the old civic institutions around trade unions, around factories, the shipyards, the mines, and so on. Um, uh, that, that's gone, and we have a much, much less tribally cohesive politics. Let me give you my pet illustration of this, and it relates to, to Barnsley. In 1950, uh, Barnsley, the turnout in the general election in Barnsley was 89%. This was not a knife-edge marginal. This was a you know, very, very solid Labour seat, majority of more than 40,000. Um, Barnsley in 2010... Uh, turnout of 58%, a much smaller Labour majority. Um, the MP that Barnsley elected in 1950 had, was an old coal miner who'd started work down the mines at the age of 13. The MP elected in Barnsley in 2010 was a university graduate, has gone, went on as a university graduate to become an official of the National Union of Mine Workers. Just over a year after the 1950 election, the Labour MP was dead from pneumoconiosis. A year after the 2010 election, the Labour MP was in jail for fiddling his expenses. You've <laughs> an extreme comparison, Comment. but it does tell us something about the way things have changed between the post, media post-war era in the Labour and Party. now. In the Labour, in the Labour Party, at the very least. <laughs> Just to pick up so your point on, on, on the point about boredom. I mean, what's striking uh, now, uh, compared with any other time in the post-war period, is that Europe has no positive or uh, inspiring narrative at all. Uh, if you think, I mean, I mean, there was, of course, the post-war narrative in the 50s and 60s of, of, of peace and re reconciliation, which is what the European economic communities 
uh, was supposed to be um, all, all about. Uh, since then, of course, we had the, the, the single market project, the 1992 project. Um, if you look at opinion polls in Britain, show very clearly that there was no time when the European Union was as, has been as popular uh, in this country as in the late 80s and early 90s with a, what was called here, anyway, the 1992 project, that, that vision of people circulating, traveling, working, appreciating each other's countries, and moving across Europe, especially amongst young people. It was a very, uh, it was a, a, a very inspiring vision. We then had, um, we then of course had the uh, collapse of communism and the European family being reunited. I'm not saying that that enormous purchase, the western half of the continent, but certainly in central eastern Europe and parts of Europe, you know, where, which have been always prey to, uh, susceptible to some of the most sort of darker atavistic instincts uh, that should have emerged at times in European history and which come out in parties like Jobbik now. But um, we, we're now in a period where there is no overarching narrative for Europe of a positive nature, one which could enthuse or at least offset some of, the, some of the grievances and some of the minor irritations and so on which feed Euroscepticism. Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, and many believers in the European project, I mean, I'm, I'm sure plenty of you have been to umpteen conferences and roundtables and so on where this is much lamented and say, well, what we need now is to find a new narrative. I would suggest we're quite a long way off that. This gentleman has been very persistent and... Uh, uh, if we, yeah, we made. I mean, three more uh, questions. I'm hoping. Thank to you. I'd just like to make a quick point. On what you just said. Then I think the human rights legislation in Europe is a great and noble process, and is testament to how great Europe can be. And a question to uh, Ma- uh, to a question to Matthew. Uh, why? What? I appreciate that you're uh, time limited in your mm-hmm. talk, but I think it would be very, very important to speak who is funding UKIP and a brief history of that sort of character. Uh, yeah, I think he's just left, actually. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know who's funding UKIP. I imagine their members and their supporters are... He has are, just left, actually. Uh, yeah, well, Stuart is in charge of their finances. Um, you know, uh, and I imagine it, 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 is, a, it is their grassroots uh, supporters. But, you know, I'm, to be completely frank with you, I'm less interested in terms of the sort of real inner uh, uh, sort of secrets of the party as I am interested in terms of what it's telling us about um, British society. Okay. Let's keep money in perspective. Because we don't have uh, television ads uh, uh, at election time, uh, money plays much less of a role. And in 1997, Jimmy Goldsmith had the referendum party, which is a sort of precursor to UKIP in terms of its appeal, and he threw £20 million as much as the Labour Conservative and got hardly any votes. So, you know, uh, money... I don't think there's anything particularly shady about UKIP's money, and I don't think it matters. OK, thank you. Uh, there's a lady uh, who I fear may end up in an orthopaedic ward if she keeps her arm um, uh, up any longer. I think the least I can do is to, is to recognise her. Uh, persistence uh, in the stripy jumper right in the middle um, Hi my name is Becky I'm at the University of Nottingham uh, given that Nigel Farage is adamant that he won't join the alliance set up by Marine Le Pen and Gert Wilders how do you see them faring alone in the European Parliament how, how, do, you see I see them? how do you see them faring in the European Parliament if they choose to go it alone outside of this alliance right. um, well welcome my fellow University of Nottingham <laughs> Um, I think uh, Cass Mudder made a really interesting observation uh, recently, um, sort of challenging this idea, you know, 
Let's start at the point that a lot of people in Brussels are very anxious about what's going to happen in May. And, and the polling, you know, gives good reason, I suppose, for that concern, if, if you're of that kind of view. Um, you know, Marine Le Pen's likely to do very well. Gert Wilders is likely to do very well. The Austrian Freedom Party is likely to do very well. UKIP are likely to do very well. Um, but, you know, as Cass pointed out, that even on a good day, you know, let's assume they get, you know, 35% of uh, seats in the European Parliament. Um, a lot of these parties are, firstly, very different ideologically, um, but secondly, you know, won't do business with one another uh, anyway. And so the sort of the headline, if you like, in terms of what I think we're going to see in May, will be a record showing for parties that the media will crudely say, uh, you know, this is the Europe's far right, despite their differences. But I don't think they will present a serious hindrance in terms of policy um, development and the actual functioning of the European Parliament. Um, you know, UKIP are clearly clinging to that strategy of, you know, keep the reputation as clean as possible, don't do any dealings with parties. So, to be completely honest, I mean, the, you know, the Front National is a very different kind of party from UKIP. There are some similarities, but it, is, it comes from a very different kind of tradition. And I don't think UKIP will, will change that anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, UKIP play practically no role in the European Parliament now. I think that those people have looked at the figures about their participation, votes and debates and so on. It is, it is very low. They're not really interested in doing anything there. So they'll go from what it is now, is it 12 now, to 20, 25 MEPs. It will basically be 25 salaries and, and office costs and so on that they will feed into what they do in, in, in Britain. Um, and, and I think it is broadly the same in most other countries. It, as, you know, it's exactly with, with Matthew. This is a series of small or medium-sized national explosions around Europe happening at the same time, but the effects will be on their own societies, their own countries, their own governments, their own electorates. Uh, I think they will have very little effect on the operation of the European Parliament day by day and the decisions it takes. Well, still, uh, still clearly life in this gathering yet. I'm going to extend it by just a, just a few minutes. Uh, and again, uh, and, there's, and, uh, and two people I will reward. The gentleman at the back, yeah, um, who's been trying yeah, for half an hour or so, and the gentleman in the blue shirt as well. Um, your efforts have not passed unnoticed. Hi there. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, I'm a member of the general public. Uh, I'd just like to ask, we've of course been promised by various politicians that we'll eventually get a referendum on Britain's membership of the EU. If we all vote to stay in the EU, will UKIP eventually go away? (laughs) (laughs) Well, nice to hear from our panellists. And if there's perhaps another member of UKIP in the audience uh, who would like to, um, uh, you know, share share their thoughts with us, but um, apart from the lady at the back. Uh, Yes, any... Uh, No, I don't, because, I mean, if if you take even, you know, if you think I'm even half right about the underlying forces, the underlying forces won't go away. So either UKIP will carry on in some form or or some other equivalent sort of pujadist, dirigiste uh, political operation, which I'm sure will outlaw the use of French words in political conversation. Um, um, uh, We'll come along. The underlying forces are there. Fortunately, in Britain, we, we, we don't have a proportional voting system, and I'm really delighted that we don't, because it, it, it raises the bar against um, such parties. I'm sorry, I'm betraying my own biases here. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, I, I think we are... I think plural politics and a variety of minority parties are here to stay. 
whether it'll be UKIP or UKIP turning into something else or something else replacing UKIP, I don't know. But there'll be a party appealing to that kind of sentiment, I'm sure, around for the rest of my life. Uh, I think that um, I think there will be because I don't think that the Conservative Party, notwithstanding the pressures on it at the moment, is going to uh, actually move to the right or in a pujade, as we say, or populist, nationalist direction sufficiently uh, to be able to uh, absolutely to uh, um, ensure that that ground doesn't isn't occupied by 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 such a party for which there's space in just about every OECD democracy. There's always space for a party to get something between eight ten percent and at most perhaps twenty percent with a broadly populist nationalist perhaps even slightly authoritarian uh, agenda. The Conservative Party traditionally has just moved just has has extended just enough to the right to be able to to mop up some people who might be uh, attracted to that agenda and effectively to take them on board and bop them on the head and neutralise them whilst, and whilst remaining a broadly liberal capitalist party and it's done that extremely well I don't think it's going to be tempted I mean you may say this is wish being father to the thought but I honestly don't believe it's going to be tempted onto terrain which would uh, foreclose any territory on the, on the further uh, right wing sh- uh, shores if you like um, uh, and, and uh, being opened up uh, to parties like UKIP so I think that they will continue to be space for a party like UKIP. Mm. Matthew, was there? Yeah, well, I think in some respects UKIP's uh, destiny is in its own hands. Um, there is a tension within the party, uh, I think, between its founding members who are very much focused on uh, getting that referendum uh, and those who see UKIP now as a vehicle that can be much uh, broader than that and can fully abandon uh, its, their single-issue uh, origins. Uh, all, all of that, I think, you know, depends on, on two things. The outcome of the referendum, um, if, I, you know, if I were to rub a crystal ball, well, if I were just to use a polling, um, you know, I think Britain will, will, will remain, if, if that referendum happens, Britain will remain uh, within the EU. I don't see it going the other way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we, and, then, and then everything will, will depend on, on whether UKIP falls apart. And, of course, so much of this depends on Nigel Farage. Um, so much of it really does depend on him in the sense that, you know, having studied minor parties and party politics for, for quite a while and, and meeting a lot of people across party politics, I think UKIP does have a succession problem, um, which, which is not insurmountable, but... Um, Farage really is, I think, uh, you know, leagues above, um, uh, you know, others within the party. And that that is a a, a challenge uh, that will define their future. Thank you. Uh, The gentleman in the blue shirt, I might be able to squeeze in one more after that, and then I will have to draw things to a close. Yes, please. Uh, Fraser Bridges, University of Essex. Um, Elections to the European Parliament, of course, started in 1979, and this will be the eighth term, and they have gone down every single time in terms of voter turnout. Um, and they're not in academic circles. They are, of course, referred to as second-order elections. Um, I was wondering, um, do you think the excitement in Brussels about the selection of a commission president in this newfangled way um, that, they've, that they've concocted from the Lisbon Treaty will drive uh, a reverse in this, or do you think something much more ambitious is needed? Yes, let's have some Belgian damp rags. <laughs> um, no. Uh, I don't. Well, I mean, no. This is. I. I, I don't think um, the, the prospect of, of a new European president, either of the Commission or the Council or the Parliament, because we have three presidents coming up later this year. I don't think it will affect you one jot. I think. I, I suspect actually, turnout in Britain will go up a bit because it's 
uh, on, uh, uh, certainly across England, it's on the same day as all, almost everybody in England has local elections. And one of the interesting things will be when you look at Scotland, where there are no other elections. Does, does turnout carry on dropping in Scotland when it's only the European Parliament, and perhaps go up in London when there will be fiercely contested borough uh, elections? And on the whole, people who vote in one will vote also in, in the other. Well, my last moment, Mandis, will be to concede to allow two more questions. Gentlemen up there and the gentleman down there. And then I will have to draw things to a close. And I'm sorry about that. Hello, uh, Kenneth McCarthy. I'm just an ordinary member of the public and a diametrically not a UKIP voter. Um, Peter just mentioned Scotland there, I think, for the first time in the, in the whole evening. Um, of course, this year we have a referendum in one part of the UK on whether it wants to remain in the UK. Um, if you drill into any of the data, do you see that this is actually mainly an English or England and Wales phenomenon, um, or is this kind of fairly the same across the UK? Oh, but, I mean, UKIP has very little support in, in Scotland. Yeah. Scotland is more pro-European than England. I mean, it wouldn't overstate it. It's like, I think, 10 or 15 points. But it's, not, it's not that Scotland is 90% pro-European and England is... 20% pro-European. It's more that England is sort of 35% and Scotland's 50 there is a difference, a statistically significant difference. It's not, not mammoth. Uh, but no, UKIP make no headway in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, if you look in, this, in the Scottish Parliament just now, the, mm. the unionist parties are falling over each other to talk about whether an independent Scotland would stay in the EU, which is very much the opposite of what the discussion is at Westminster. But, yeah, but perhaps but, that's but not representative but the, of the population. But I think the... I, I'm afraid I'm being very cynical in my old age, but I think that the, the point of the debate about whether Scotland automatically remains a member of the EU or has to leave and reapply should it be independent, this is more about creating a sense of uncertainty about Scotland's future than whether you're pro or anti-European. Because in general, across the world, referend, constitutional referendums on a society which is, as we're deeply divided on the issue, the status quo usually wins or usually gains ground because as near you approach, the, the more people fear the possibility and the risks of change. So the issue about Scottish membership of the EU is more about risk and uncertainty than about pro or anti-EU attitudes. Okay. Yes, sorry, the gentleman. Yeah. Uh, will, this will be the last question. Okay. Uh, yes. James will be a member of the Conservative Party. Two very quick points, if I may, and uh, one to each. Um, to, to the first speaker question, in a sense, if UKIP's uh, voter base is so overwhelmingly sort of old, white, male, 65 plus, etc., is there almost an argument to say we can just wait it out in a very real sense. Um, to be honest, in a sense, every year we get more pro-Europeans and we get fewer anti-Europeans. We could just wait it out. And to Peter, um, touching on what you said about your sort of Marxist, not, not his, not his uh, political theories, which I agree with you are bollocks, but more his, um, his economics, um, is there almost an answer to say that UKIP is the modern instantiation of the Luddite tendency? Mm. Well, I mean, in terms of uh, the first point about generational change, which I'll use diplomatically, um, I, I mean, two points. Firstly, you know, your party's suffering from that too. Um, but, hang on. But, but secondly, you know, and my students ask this a lot, you know, because I show them the, these data, allow them to play, play around with it, and, and they say, well, you know, will we always be this sort of pro-Europe and, you know, socially liberal and stuff? And, um, I mean, there is this argument that actually, you know, what this might actually be 
perhaps is less about sharp generational change than a sort of life cycle effect, whereas some of these younger Britons become, uh, assume more responsibility, you know, get a house, get married, have kids, perhaps fall on some hard times. You know, there will, as Peter says, there will always be potential for these types um, of movements. Um, you know, UKIP is very old. It's very old. And I think they, they, I think, I think, they recognise that there's one thing that they have failed to do or at least their leader recognises, that in a, in, a, in a time of sharp fiscal austerity where we have a generation of very disaffected youth who are turned off by mainstream politics, that they have failed to seize that opportunity as a radical anti-establishment party and, and connect with younger voters in the same way that uh, other radical outsiders have uh, in other European states. I just make one observation on the demographics of all this. Uh, uh, look, I share your perspective uh, in the sense that um, by rights, your party and, and my party should have been written out of the script uh, decades ago. Uh, it is a fact that in, in nearly all European countries, young people are more inclined to vote sort of in a more leftish way and, 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 and older people to, to vote right, older people die, uh, and yet conservative and centre-right governments continue to be elected. Why is that? Um, well, people, as they get older, um, if I can put it so condescendingly, maybe they grow up. Uh, so uh, I'm sure plenty of people want my guts for garters in the audience for saying that. But, you know, uh, it, it really, I, I think there's just very little that one can actually project and predict, you know, predict on the basis of uh, the age structure of political affiliation because, in practice, it seems to be much more fluid and subject to other factors um, and uh, makes predictions a, a fool's, a, a mug's, a mug's a mug's game. Yeah, and I, and I realise I'm, I'm, I'm the aberrant uh, geriatric has moved in the opposite direction. Um, I like your Luddite's point. I really do. I hadn't thought of it. I think it's, I mean, and, and part of the reason why I like it is because, um, as, as I'm sure some of you will be aware, the Luddites were not as conventionally painted. They were not anti-progress and anti-machines. They were anti those loom owners who simply used it to drive down costs and wages and make bigger profits. Um, so I think the Luddites actually were quite noble. I'm not, I'm not sure their tactics were always of the wisest, but their, their proposition, which was that improving technology should be... The benefits of technology should be spread fairly, I think was right... And I actually think this is, as it were, the central question of modern Western liberal capitalist societies. How do we reconnect, to use the old sort of Blair thing from Labour thing from 1997, how do we reconnect social justice and economic efficiency? Um, Blair asked the question, had one or two half-decent short-term answers, and that was about it. But that is the question, in a sense, UKIP is is one answer, may not be a very good answer, may not like it, but it is one answer to that. But I think that is the big question of our era. Well, uh, sadly, I'm going to have to draw things to a close now. I think, I hope we can all agree, we've had an absolutely uh, cracking hour and three quarters. Uh, We would really come at this... uh, this question from every conceivable angle and I think our panellists, our two panellists have really d- done us proud so I'm sure in the best LSE tradition we'd like to extend our thanks to them and thank you all for coming. <laughs> <laughs>